Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Proverbs chapter 31 again, and uh, you'll remember, so we can kind of tie everything together here, last week uh, we saw one of the most sobering truths anywhere in the Bible uh, dealing with our relationship with Christ. Us, we as God's people, uh, losing touch with reality when it comes to uh, the things of God. Uh, you know, uh, once you go through all of the Solomon's Proverbs and, uh, you know, his principles for life, and as, as you read them, it, you get a great insight into the way that God looks at things. And, you know, I talk a lot about reality checks, and last week we talked about dealing with reality. And, and reality simply is the, our ability to see everything the way God sees it. God sees it through the eyes of truth. And uh, we see it through the eyes many times of <laughs> what we want to see. And, uh, you know, it's always been uh, Proverbs, and I've said this many, many times, Proverbs has always been the one book that if, uh, if I could have total recall. Uh, most people don't know who Jack Van Impey was. Jack Van Impey was an evangelist back in the late 60s and the 70s. Uh, I think he's dead now. I think he died. Um, but he was called the Walking New Testament. And uh, he had hooked up with a guy by the name of Fred Brown, who was another great evangelist, an old school van evangelist. And Jack Van Impey, through his, with him, had completely memorized the complete New Testament. I mean, memorized the complete New Testament. And I remember hearing him preach back in the 70s when I was still in Ohio, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, he would just, You'd be able to quote anything out of the New Testament, just total recall. And I've often thought to myself, you know, that's probably more for my brain cells than could ever ha handle, but it's a thing where if I could just have the book of Proverbs, you know, if I could just have the book of Proverbs that everything that I saw in life, everything that I had to deal with, everything that came into my world, I would have the ability of total recall to be able to put the principle to it. And uh, Proverbs is, is an incredible book. And as you can well see now, we have took a long time coming through this book, and now we've hit chapter 31. And chapter 31 is kind of like the consolidation of everything that we've seen up to this point. And in chapter 31, it lays itself out of what we, we really as God's people should be to Him. Not what we think we ought to be. If there's ever a reality check for us as God's people of what we need to be, it would be Proverbs chapter 31. Uh, you know, uh, it's, it's, it lays itself out in the most incredible way. You know, every Christian ought to be far-sighted, And that means that you ought to look far-sighted to the fact that someday we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Loss of reality for us is going through life every day, doing what we do, and forgetting the fact that someday we're going to give an account for it. And that is the basic reality that all of God's people, we all struggle with. That someday we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And when you come through Proverbs chapter 31, you see that this woman, this virtuous woman, who is a picture of what you and I should be, it's very clear that every day of her life, she's making her clothes. 
Because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in that great chapter, along with 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that there's going to be some of God's people who will wind up naked. And the thing that determines whether we do or whether we don't is what clothes we are making right now. What clothes we are making right now with the things that we saw last week and, again, the things that we're going to see today. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, the judgment seat of Christ is called the terror of the Lord. And I know that we read things like that, and because of we've got so many things uh, in our own world that take away the fear of God, and we see things on television that are so graphically, you know, people being murdered and cut up in pieces and tacked together with chainsaws that we just, we, we get desensitized to the fact that there are things around us, and we just cannot understand get a reality of how that that day when we stand before Lord, the Lord is going to be a terror for us. You know, for most of God's people, probably everybody here, if you're saved this morning, and I'm pretty much everybody is, I'm sure. You know, for the most of us today, uh, we, we would say that the greatest day of our life was the day that we got saved. And that is so true. Uh, the greatest day of our life is the day that we got saved and trusted the Lord Jesus Christ and came out of the darkness, you know, into the light. But I can also tell you based on where we're at in Proverbs chapter 31 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the day of our salvation may be the greatest day, but the most terrible day for us after that day of salvation will be the day of the Lord, the judgment seat of Christ, or the day of Jesus Christ. Um, it, it just simply will. Because that will be the great reality check. And you know, it's hard for me to grasp because that day should never overtake anybody. There is no reason for the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ, as it's called in the Bible, will, should ever sneak up on any of us. Because right now we have everything in the Word of God, everything within God's structure of a church, if it's a Bible-believing preaching church, everything that we need to understand where we're at, what we should be doing, and then get the help to be able to do that. But that's just not reality, is it? And uh, the judgment seat of Christ will simply be God's great reality check. It'll be the end of all the games that we as Christians like to play. It'll be the end of all the excuses that we have of why we don't do what God wants us to do. It'll be the end of all the things that took God's place in our life and most terribly, most tragically, and most finally, it'll be the end of us as self. No longer will we put ourselves in front of God. No longer will we look at our lives, what we have, play the games that we play, circumvent all of the preaching that we hear and everything that comes right down the line to us. The day you and I finally see it all from God's perspective and God's understanding. Your salvation, your life, your family, your job, the ministry God had for you, the work God has for you within that ministry, your church, and the plan that God had for you and for me that 
we thought was so unreasonable for us to be that living sacrifice that God wanted us to be. Well, then understand the great concept that I laid out several weeks ago, God's will versus God's plan. You know, years ago, and I was just a young Christian, and I was just, I hadn't been right with God probably more than six, seven, eight months. Mel and I were, were, were going someplace with several of us, and they began to talk about a, a, a preacher who, who uh, had passed away. And I knew nothing. I didn't know who this guy was. I, can't even, I don't even remember his name now. But he was somebody prominent, and, and they were talking back and forth about it. And, you know, me, I asked, this, I said, I'm just new to this. And I said, I said hey, Mel, I said, did, did he believe the book? And his answer was classic Mel. And he simply grunted out, snorted out, he does now. And I thought to myself, you know why he does now? Because when we go home and face the judgment seat of Christ, it's the great reality check of life. We don't play the games anymore. We don't circumvent all that God wants us to do. It's now come to the place where suddenly, suddenly the reality sets in. Suddenly, all the reasons why we don't want to be at church, all the reasons why we don't want to serve the Lord, all the reasons why, and you know what? Most of God's people, we talked about opportunities last week, the last couple of weeks, and I told you the majority of God's people never miss an opportunity to try to miss an opportunity. And suddenly in that day, the reality, based on God's work that He did for you and me to be saved, he becoming our sacrifice, and yet all our lives, we just kept it all for ourselves and ignored the work that he started in us. God's people. I'm not talking about the worldly people out there that are saved and living like the devil and living in the world. I'm talking about, like last week, God's people who are in church today. Maybe some of you that are here today, who if you've left your Bible... You've left your church, at least mentally, some of you, physically, and you've lost your relationship. And yet all the time, you play this game. You play this game that you're okay. And the great reality check is coming. And you're like the church. We're like the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. We've left our first love. And our first love was the Word of God. And suddenly now, in an instant, in a twinkling of an eye, where in one microsecond we're all playing the game and think it's fine, in a millisecond, in a twinkling of an eye, <coughs> we stand before God with a glorified body and now have the mind of Christ. And for the first time in our lives, we now see and fully understand all that he did for us. The great reality of check that all that he did for us and then all that we didn't do for him. I understand why it's called the terror of the Lord because it's going to be the finalization, the finalization of every one of us who thumbed our nose at the very things that God died to give us. And now suddenly, here we are. No place to hide. No excuses to give. Simply for the first time in your life, standing there, reasoning and understanding fully and completely 
everything that he suffered for you and for me. And if he would just come right now, in your last week of your life, the last month of your life, how would that stack up to what he's done for you and for me? And week after week, this has been an incredible chapter. And week after week, we, we, we just get a little deeper into God's mind. And I guarantee you, at the judgment seat of Christ, there will be God's people. I hope none of you. But there will be, some, there will be many of God's people that will get on their knees and beg to go back into the church age in time for just five minutes to serve him. But there will be no going back. And as we come through here, we see a picture emerging. We see a picture emerging that to many of God's people is one of the greatest things that you'll ever study. But to many of God's people, it'll be the most terrifying thing that you hear. We had trouble with our internet this morning and wasn't sure we were going to get live on the broadcast. And let me just say, this probably, Aaron, would have been a good morning to pull the plug. Because if you ain't figured it out already, it's going to be rough this morning. If you ain't come to terms with it already, I mean, this would be a great time to take an hour coffee break, have a sincere case of nausea. And uh, I'm, I'm telling you, as we see this picture emerge of what a man and a woman should be, when that transformation actually takes place in their life. If there's one phrase that comes out of Proverbs chapter 31, and I'll be honest with you. Honestly, I, I have been through Proverbs probably 100 times. I, I, I got my notes in from 31, and i got to be honest with you. I really thought that this would be a pleasant journey. I had no idea that once we began to pull the layers back of where this thing would go. And it's all built around one concept. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. That he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, that's a killer verse. You know... Most of us have probably read that verse many, many times, but I'm telling you, after Proverbs chapter 31, it'll never, you'll never read it the same way again. Now, last week, just to kind of put a cohesiveness to it, uh, we looked at verses 12 and 13, and it says there, uh, she, you and me, the virtuous woman, will do him, God, good, and not evil all the days of uh, her life. And I showed you what it really means to do God evil. We now have a better understanding of that because when you would just read that, you would automatically associate that with the worldly, godless Christians who live in the world and do nothing for God, and uh, you would never suspect for a moment that it would be talking about church-going people every week who carry the right Bible, who sing the loudest in their churches, who tithe to their churches, who go to church, who never miss Sunday morning, Sunday night, or Wednesday night, and they're just as absolutely worthless as the ones out there in all their lives. They do him evil. You know why? Because doing him evil is based on not going to church. 
It's not based on what Bible you have, though it's important. It's not based on all the things that we do. It's simply based on, did you recognize and understand that the day he saved you, he began a good work in you? Do you understand? Has the reality set in that you and your family exist for one reason, and that is to carry on for him what he started for you? And by the way, he paid the price for. And he hath begun a good work in you and will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. You know, there's God's people who never step out by faith. It's like their lives get so complicated because of bad choices, the people that they marry, the stupid things that we all do. And they can never get to the place in their life where they can never step out to be that living sacrifice. Now, I'm not saying you got to quit your job and go put on a robe and go to the airport and, and pass out tracks. I'm not saying you got to do that. What I am saying that your life becomes so dialed in to what he did for you that wherever you go. And we deny that work that God had started and, you know, we actually allow... We actually allow the devil to take us right out and do him evil. And I know, I, that's so foreign. Because you're in church this morning, you got the right Bible, and you're sitting there, and you're smug and satisfied, and you could never grasp how that the devil could use you to do him hurt. And then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, Peter, one of the inner three, when the Lord was talking about going to the cross, tried to stop him, and Jesus himself looked at him and said, Get behind me, Satan. There Satan tried to use Peter to keep the Lord from going to the cross, and it can happen to any of us. And then last week we saw verse 13, She seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands. And I added some more key words to where we were at, good and evil. Wool and flax, the wool coming off of a sheep as a sacrifice, us as a sacrifice, the flax being made into thread from a plant that we actually take the wool and make clothes, and those coverings are, start with the garments of our salvation but wound up being the righteous robes at the judgment seat of Christ, seeketh and willingly. If you ever want a good example of that, just go to Proverbs chapter 2 and read the first five verses right there. Worketh and hands, the work that God has for you and your hands by which you'll do it with. Us, doing the work of God that he saved us for and called us to. And I showed it not only in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, but I showed it to you in Matthew chapter 20 when the hours down through the church age that we went to work. And we now know, we now know completely we are in the 11th hour Christianity. We're right before the Lord comes back. There's a book that's being circulated by some guy out there that uh, looks at the coronavirus and looks at the world the way it is, and he actually thinks that the coronavirus is going to bring about a great a revival across this world. People are buying them like hotcakes. It's called something, the, the Last Great Awakening or something like that. 
And, you know, I, I, I look at guys like that, and, and I, I'm not doubting his sincerity. I'm really not. I think he's probably as serious as a heart attack and probably believes what he writes in that book. I'm not doubting his sincerity. I'm doubting his insanity. I mean, you've got to be absolutely brain dead when it comes to the Bible and know nothing about history, know nothing about the seven great awakenings that we've already had in our country, how God brought those, and what the real key is to any revival or any awakening in any country anywhere in the world. And when you lose sight of that because you've lost reality, then you come up with goofy books like that, and, uh, you know, it's a thing where uh, it, it, it just is not going to happen. The great awakening that is coming will be the one the Antichrist ushers in under a false pretense of Christianity. And you might as well get set for that. Now today, we're going to look at two more verses and begin to tie them into what we have seen uh, thus far. And it says in verse, this will be verses 14 and 15, and it says, She is like a merchant ship that bringeth her food from afar. She rises also while it is yet night, and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maiden. Donnie, you're right there in the middle, and you're already in trouble with your wife, so let's try to make some things here. Ask God blessing on the sermon this morning. Now, Proverbs chapter 31, verses 14 and 15. Now, let's look at verse 14. She is like the merchant ships that bringeth her food from afar. Now, we're talking about this virtuous woman, and now she's paralleled or likened to a merchant ship with food from afar. Now, uh, you know, I don't know what you know about Bible times back then, but uh, the Bible times, the cities, the nations, the uh, communities, they were... They were dependent on the trade routes that, that came in from around the known world, both by land and by sea. We know of the camel car- caravans that were trade routes, but ships crossed the seas. When Paul writes, he writes some of his letters, at least two of them anyhow, from uh, these metropolitan cities that are the center uh, for the ships of merchandise and merchants to come into port. One of them is uh, when he writes the book of Colossians. Colossia was a major trade center for everybody around the known world at that time. Another one was Corinth. When he wrote First and Second Corinthians, Corinth was a major city. It had harbors on both sides. And it was a chief city of the Roman Empire for trade during that time. And cities would wait for those ships to come in with all the goods that she would bring them from far places spices that they couldn't get, clothing, material like silk and perfume, exotic foods and animals and all of the things that were rare items that they could not get in their own country. Back in Solomon's day, which is around 1000 B.C., Jerusalem is the epicenter of the world at that particular point in time. You don't get that in college. You won't get that in high school. You get that in the Bible. All the world looked at Jerusalem for those 40-some years when Sodom was on the throne. And we know that there's nations coming in and bringing in. It was a hub for trade. And Sodom knew about the trade routes. Obviously, as I said, Jerusalem was the center of it. 
And he's making a parallel by seeing the rarity of the goods that are coming in. Now remember, he has a thousand wives, and he probably got most of these wives not out of Jerusalem. They came from around these countries and around the known world at that time. So he's looking at all of the rarity that's coming in to Jerusalem from all these other places. He's looking at the women that have come from all these places, and he likens the one woman that he finds, her virtue, to like the rare commodities that these ships are bringing in to Jerusalem. And it's her virtue. You know, you find this. Paul does the same thing here in, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. <clears throat> Paul's living in the first century. And at that time in the first century, the greatest military power the world has ever seen was the Roman Empire. And every place that Paul went was garrisoned by Roman soldiers. So he saw them 24-7. They were marching up the street. They were staying in guard. They were in the cantinas. They were eating there. He saw them everywhere. And Paul knew <clears throat> that the Roman soldier had literally conquered the world and was the greatest fighting army that the world has ever seen. Probably still holds that title today because of their many of the things that they teach up at Fort Leavenworth and at the college for the generals and for the West Point and Annapolis, the battle tactics, go back to the Roman Empire. They, they were very sophisticated. That's why they took over the world. And Paul is sitting there <clears throat> when he writes Ephesians. He describes what Christians ought to be based on the armor of a first century Roman soldier. And I know what he's thinking. <clears throat> he's thinking to himself, seeing the greatest military army the world has ever, ever put in place, he's saying to himself, if I could get God's people to stand and fight for Christ like these guys stand and fight for a pagan God, Christianity would be something special. So he uses it. And Solomon's looking at all these ships coming in, <clears throat> bringing all these rare things from a far place, and he's saying to himself, I have a woman in my life who is just as rare as that because she too comes from a far place and she has virtue. And for us, in the ministry, that's a great illustration. For what we have uh, to give people, when you work with them, when you help them, when you disciple them or work with them through whatever structure we have here, uh, what you're giving them is certainly from a far country. It's the Word of God from heaven. It's the Bible. It's the AV 1611 in particular. It's God's supernatural gift to man from a far country. It's called the bread of heaven in the Bible. It's called the bread of life in John chapter 6. And in Psalms chapter 78 verse 25, it's called angel food. And in Exodus chapter 16, when the children of Israel were struggling in the wilderness with nothing to eat, God brought down the manna from heaven. The supernatural food that God brought down to feed His people that nourished them and got them through the wilderness. And the world that you and I live in is no less a wilderness. The world that you and I live in is filled with the things of this world that will destroy you. And the only way we could ever get through is God supernaturally gave us the manna from heaven. Our food from afar. And like this church, or Christians... 
It's a pearl. It's alive. The Bible, I know, is written with ink and paper, but it also is alive. You know, in our country, the, <clears throat> our countries have went so far, and what we're seeing now around today, <clears throat> I know we want to blame it on everybody and everything, but where the blame needs to go, but it all goes back to this country leaving the one thing that they had that was absolutely perfect for what we needed to do with our lives, and that is the Word of God. Our liberal friends <clears throat> look at our Constitution. And yes, your Constitution is under attack today. They take the position that the Constitution is a form of a living document. And by that, I mean that they think that the Constitution changes with society as it changes. This is why you're seeing your tax on your First Amendment, your Second Amendment. They're now reinterpreting that the Founding Fathers didn't mean that you could have a gun in your house to keep you from being protected from a tyrannic government because when they wrote that in there, that's exactly what they had just gotten out of, Great Britain. But you see, you lose all that. They think now that it's, it means something else. And this is why that 50 years ago, gays and lesbians were looked at for what they really are. But now it's no longer a sin. Now it's an alternative lifestyle. And we have, we have lost all of those things that, that our country was once founded on. And of course, our country was not founded as a democracy, which it is today, but it was founded as a republic. When you went to school and said the Pledge of Allegiance, it was to the public for which it stands. A republic is a Bible-based institution that is completely different from a democracy. And this country was founded as a republic. Our Constitution doesn't change with society. Our Constitution fixes how society should be all down through the history of the country based on the concept of a republic. And yet we see the same thing when it comes to the Bible and modern-day Christianity with pastors and churches. The liberal Christians, just like the liberal politicians, they too think the Bible is a living book. And let me clarify this. The Bible is a living book, but not the way they're trying to portray it. They think that the Bible, like our Constitution, should change as society changes. And this is why you find women pastors all over the place. You'll find gay uh, and lesbian pastors. you find same-sex marriages now uh, being accepted. you find everything. And this goes back to around the beginning of the 1900s, as I've told you before, with a neo-Orthodox movement, who their understanding was to bring and society changes, then Christianity and the Bible changes. Then you add that, the neo-evangelical crowd, who their goal was to take the Bible from the common man and put it back in scholarship, and voila, this is why we've got what we've got. And now stupid Baptist preachers and Baptist churches and stupid Christians fall into that, and uh, of course that's not true. The Bible is alive, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, but it's alive as absolute truth that never changes. It's God's truth from a far country, and never should it be brought in line with the world, but in reality, the world should be brought in line with the Bible. It's living truth that never changes. 
Bible's a living book that changes us. It doesn't exist so we can change it. The Bible never changes. It just fixes and defines for us what we should have in our life. And when our founding fathers put out the Constitution, this is why they wrote God into it. This is why the first time when Thomas Jefferson sent it back, they said, this isn't good. We only got one mention of God. We need some more because we can never forget what God has done for this nation. But we've lost that today. You know why? This country has lost the reality of how it was founded. And before we're too hard on our country, let me tell you why you're in the sad shape that we're in today. Because you and I have lost the reality of what God did for us on the cross. And God's people are in church today without any purpose. They're, they're like a dog who you put in your, in your garage one of those doors that they can go in and out of the weather. And if you put a lock and a, and a handle on it, they can never use the key or open it. they got to have a flap that they can go in and out. They don't know why they go in and out. They just know it's time to go in and out. And God's people have no purpose. They couldn't open up their Bible, have no keys to it to get into it. They just go like that dog through the flap every Sunday, every Sunday night, and every Wednesday and have no purpose to why they're doing it. You know, and we in ministry today, we, we, we labor to unload this book in people's lives. I mean, it's just that simple. You have food from a far country. I don't know if you know it or not, but the Bible is supernatural food for you and for me. And in the Bible, there are seven food groups that the Bible is likened to. It's likened the milk in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. You give milk to babies. And when we get young Christians here, we start you with milk, discipleship one. It's likened to water in John chapter 4 because like the woman at the well, we get thirsty and dusty and hot in this old world and we can drink all what the world has for it and it'll never satisfy that thirst. And only when you drink the everlasting waters that that thirst gets satisfied. It's likened to meat in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And meat will be doctrine. It's likened to honey in Psalms 119, verse 103. And honey is, gives you what you need in your life. And all, it's likened to apples in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 11. It's likened to bread in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. And it's likened to vegetables in Psalms chapter 78, verse 24. A complete diet, spiritually. And all that is food that God sent to you and to me from afar. And when you eat the drink the milk and eat the drink the water and eat the meat and eat the honey and the apples and the bread and the vegetables, it'll be something that you've never tasted anything like it on this earth. And even not only that, in Jeremiah chapter eight, verse twenty two, in case you get sick, the Bible's likened to medicine, the bomb of Gilead. You know, we live in perilous times. And uh Oh, Steve back there runs the Blue Steel Gun Shop. This is a plug for him. He doesn't have to pay for this. And uh, every day is every day I see him, I say, Dad, would you have a good gun day? And his answer is always the same. Every day is a good gun day. You know, you, there's some handguns you can't buy. He'll get in $20,000. If I'm wrong, you can correct me, Steve. You'll get in $20,000 worth of ammo, and it'll be gone in two days. People are stocking up on it. You know why? Because they're afraid of what's out there. 
And uh, you know, you got, the, you, got the, you got the people who are thinking that they're going to come away and take all of your guns, and so you're going to get them and hide them, and you're stocking ammunition someplace and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, you think that the anarchy is going to break into your neighborhood, and maybe it will. But at the bottom line is, you're buying all this stuff and, and, and guns and ammo, and I'm not saying you don't have a right to protect yourself, but let me just tell you this. If they ever decide to roll over your house, they'll be over it in 15 minutes, and you and your wife and your three kids won't stop them. If you want anything at all, you better get the old idea. You better get what we used to call in the military a bug-out bag. You need to have it stashed someplace with enough food, ammunition, and whatever you need, and you bug out when it happens, and then you fight a guerrilla warfare, see? While they're going through your house, you seal all the doors and set it on fire and stand back and wave at them as they burn to death. Things like that. Fun things of life. But it's a thing where people are afraid today. They're scared today. And yet, I'm going to tell you, not only does the Bible give you the food from afar, but the Bible is the greatest bug-out bag you ever had in your life because it's a su Christian survival kit. If you've got to fight for yourself as a Christian, the Bible's likened to a sword in Hebrews chapter 4. If you're out there in the middle of the night, it's likened to a light in Psalm 119, 105. If you have to build something with something, it's likened to a nail in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 23. And if you have to build something and pound the nails in, it's like into a hammer in Gen Jeremiah 23, 29. And if it gets cold at night, it's like into a fire. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29, Revelation 19 and 20. All you need to survive, and it all comes from a far country. See, I don't need to depend on the things here. I got everything I need that came in from a far country, and it's good. And with all this, you can survive anything that will come your way, even the coronavirus. But many won't. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now, and you might as well forget everything else you wrote down or going to write down, just write down this one. Things are never going back to normal. And this coronavirus is not going to ever go away. Our country and our society is depending on it not to. And it's a situation where it's going to be around forever, and you're always, you ain't going, everywhere you go, you got to be six feet apart from people. You're going to see football games now that are only stadiums are only half full of that. You're going to go to NASCAR. <laughs> You're going to watch NASCAR races with nobody in the stands. The new norm is so far from the old norm, and nothing's going to change. You're not going to have a time where we go back like what we once did. It ain't going to come to the place where, uh, uh, you know, this country can't agree on anything. Well, the state and the cities and the city governments couldn't even agree on a plan. Are you kidding me? And this group is going to say it's okay to do this. This group's going to say no. You're all going to be wearing masks. I already got mine. I got a big old World War II gas mask. It just goes on with a long hose and a canister, and you wear it around your waist, and it's great. You can't hear anything, can't see anything. I'm already in that problem. And I guarantee you, if it'll keep out mustard gas, it'll keep out your coronavirus. 
And I'm going to tell you right now, I, I've said this all along. This virus, in one sense, has been a good thing. I know a lot of things. 100,000 people died in America alone. I'm not happy about that, and that's just, I understand. But I'm going to tell you what it did for Christianity. It defined Christianity. And I'm telling you right now, churches across this country, probably our own church, there were people that will never come back to church again. I told you when it started, when you had a nominal, no-count relationship with God that meant nothing to you before it hit, you actually think suddenly Christianity is going to mean now something to you when it has hit? God's people ought to be ashamed of themselves. You can trust God to get you through everything in life, or so you say. There's a book back in that bookstore you ought to pick up. We only got, sorry, John, we only got about probably two or three copies back there, but it's called The Life Story of the Waldensians. And you ought to read the chapter of what they put up with to go to church. Because the Catholic Church at that time had outlawed every Baptist church on this planet, and anybody found with a King James Bible was executed in the most horrific way. And of course, they went out just to kill you. They were out to convert you. And their form of conversion was to pull out your fingernails one at a time. It was to take your little kids and throw them in front of you in, into a pig mire and watch the pigs eat them while your little kids cried out, Mommy, Daddy, help me. They took men and filled their mouth with bags of gunpowder and put a fuse in and lit the fuse and blew their heads off. They impaled women with hot iron. They put your head in a bag full of rats. You know how they got away with doing all that with hundreds and hundreds of thousand people? Because God's people wouldn't stop going to church. They realized the sacrifice that he made. And if a bag full of rats, if my fingernails pulled out of gunpowder in the head was what I could do to be a living sacrifice, then I'm going to church. You know what we all need? We need a reality check, pal. And there will be God's people who will never come back to churches. Because it ain't going away. And at some point, you got to just say, God's going to get me through it. And if, he, if I get it, to the glory of God, I'll get it. <laughs> we are so far from that one. Verse 15. She riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her matrons. Now this would be a great time to have computer trouble. 
This will be a great time to switch over and see what's playing on, on your favorite YouTube channel. Because, brother, I'm telling you what, I, this chapter is much more than I ever thought it was going to be. I make no apology for it. I, I, I should have just said, hey, let's just stop at 30 and do something for another 10 years and then come back and finish it up later and hope the Lord would have come back. I'm sorry I didn't do that, but I'm the kind of guy that if it's here, I'm going to preach it. I am never in my life sidestepped anything in that Bible that had to be said, and I'm not about to stop now. And I'm telling you, God's people, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. After what he did for you, you're going to let a little virus, you're going to let it cancel out whatever God wants to do with you. You're going to put your tail between your legs, get under your bed, and hide till it goes away. It ain't going away. You're going to be six feet from people. You're going to have to wait at restaurants. You're going to have to do this. And, and it, it, it's never going to go back to the way it was. This is the beginning of the new world order. And the greatest thing about it, it defined you, sir. Ma'am, it defined you, dad. It defines you, ma'am. You know, we all know where we're all at. And boy, in verse 15, there are some incredible things in this little verse. This is one of those verses that will, that will leave you no place to hide. I am not kidding you. I wish at times like this today, just a little bit, I was a liberal. I, I, I wish that I just could get up and talk to you how nice God's people are and how God, when we got saved, what God did was take us as ugly ducklings and turn us into beautiful swans. I wish I could say that. But he saved us. We took his salvation. He did a good work in us. He became our sacrifice. And we said, no, thank you. And we live our lives the way we want to on our terms. We get our nose bent out of joint when it doesn't go our way. And this is one verse that will simply leave all of us, you and me, no place to hide. It's powerful. Now, let's look at a few words here as we move into this thing, and hopefully just stall a little bit. Maybe the Lord will come back, and I won't have to finish this this morning. The first word will be the word night. In your Bible, the nighttime will always be a picture of the church age. Daniel chapter 7, dealing with the Gentile nations in the church age, Daniel had a vision by night. In Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, it's called children of the day and not of the night. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, it says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, rapture. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And in Mark chapter 13, I've told you before, a couple of weeks ago I showed you in Matthew chapter 20 the our system of figuring out approximately the return of Christ. 
There's also a day system based on the seven days of creation. There's also a three-day system based on the three days in the New Testament when it breaks. And then here there's the watch system. And this watch system starts around uh, 60 A.D. and moves right on through the time. And here's what it says, verse 32, Mark 13, 32 through 37. But of that day and of that hour knoweth no man, know not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Take heed, take heed, take ye heed. Watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. For the Son of Man is as a man taking a far journey who left his house and gave authority to his servants. And every man his work. And commanded the porter to watch. Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house, that's God the Father, the Lord Jesus, cometh. Here it is, at even, at midnight, or at the cock crowing, or in the morning. Now when you lay this thing out into a four-watch scale for the New Testament, which runs, we know, 2,000 years, the fact that God's counting it differently or however he's counting it, whenever he comes, it'll be 2,000 years in his mind. That would put the even from 60 A.D. up to about 500 A.D. That would put the midnight from 500 A.D. to about 1,000 A.D. That would put the cock crowing about 1,000 to 1,500 in the morning from 1,500 to 2,000 when it starts to get daylight, time-wise. Now, the church age is likened to the night. So over there in Genesis, when God created two great lights, he created the lesser light to rule the day, or the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, the sun as we know it, uh, in the verse there for the second coming of Christ, you would think it's called the son of righteousness. You would think it would be spelled S-O-N of righteousness. It's not. It's spelled S-U-N, like our son of righteousness. And of course, he's showing you that the son is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving us a complete understanding of Genesis 1.16. He made the greater light to rule the day, second coming, the lesser light to rule the night, the church age. So when you go over to Job chapter 25, verse 5, you find that the Christian is likened to the moon. And of course, uh, the parallel is that the uh, moon is a lesser light that rule the night, church age. So when you go out on a night, like tonight, the moon won't be quite full yet. It's, it's heading that way or it's heading off of it. I'm not sure which was waxing or waning. But anyway, when you see it, <clears throat> it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. That's a picture of every Christian in this room. When you show up after new moon, new birth, you should get every day brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter till you come to that full moon. And now you are the light, the lesser light that lights the night. But the moon doesn't reflect by its own light, Job chapter 25, verse 5. The moon reflects the light of the sun. So you as a child of God, the, us as a child of God, the light of the night, we don't shine by our own light. We only shine by the light that we reflect from the Lord Jesus Christ, the day star. And of course, it's one of the most beautiful illustrations anywhere in the Bible. You and I should be lighting the night right now. But you know as well as I do, some nights you go out and the moon is full. It casts a shadow on this ground that's so bright. That ought to be your life and my life. But there's times when you go out and there's no moonlight, yet the moon is full. You know what's happened? The clouds of this old earth have rolled in and blocked out the light. 
and there's many of God's people this morning that the clouds of this old world has rolled into your life and it's blocked out the light. And then every once in a while you have one of those scientific phenomena of an eclipse. And an eclipse is when the earth comes in between the sun and the moon and it shuts down the light and it, uh, the light of the moon goes out. And somebody says that's an eclipse. No, that's a picture of what happens to every child of God when the world comes in between you and the sun. Your light goes out and you no longer are the light of the night. So you've got four watches here. And in the back of chapter 2, which we've covered extensively before, you and I are told to stand our watch. And he says in verse 36 or verse 35, Watch ye therefore, for you know not when the master of the house cometh at even. Now we know what that is. At midnight, we know what that is. Or at cock crowing. Or in the morning. Fourth watch. When he comes. Lest coming suddenly he find you what? Hang on to this word, sleeping. And what I say, I say unto you all, watch. How's that watch going for you today? How's the watch working for you? Now let's look at this verse for a moment here, and boy, I'm going to tell you something. I, I, I'm just telling you guys, honestly, hang with me. This is not going to be pleasant. It says, she rises while it is yet night. Mark chapter 13, verse 36, that the fear was that he'd find us sleeping. She's, she's working while others sleep. She rises. That's a picture of you and me in the church age, not falling asleep like everybody else and losing touch with reality, but staying focused. Our labor, our work during the church age. We are the only light. We reflect the light of the sun, the Lord Jesus Christ, and through that reflection, we light the night of the people around you with the virtue that you and I have got. And we are fast asleep as God's people. It says, And giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens. Now we are in the middle of chapter 31 and simply define for us the work of the ministry. And this verse is so powerful <clears throat> and so devastating, it's hard <clears throat> to believe that it's never been unearthed, but then that's not true because who would want to unearth this? The next key words, meat and household. <clears throat> now, meat in your Bible <clears throat> will always be Bible doctrine. The Bible says that strong meat belongeth to him that is full of age, who by reason of use, using it, can discern good versus evil. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that the first thing that the Bible's profitable for is doctrine. Now, the household here will be your immediate family. Now the thing that I want you to see in the great question mark of this verse that we're going to answer today is why does he say give meat to your family but then he says only a portion to the maidens? Why do not the maidens get the same amount as your household? 
Does that ever strike you? Did you ever see that? Did you ever read through that? And you guys on Thursday nights, or <coughs> you, especially on the internet, you guys here, some of you are great at picking up things like that. You'll say to yourself, <coughs> and that's how you learn the Bible. One of the ways is you ask yourself, you see something and say, no, why is that? That doesn't look right. And I'm asking you, before I explain it to you, I'm asking you, why does it say give meat to your family, but you can only give a portion to the maidens? And how would be a very good time to have computer trouble? Because here it comes. Ready or not. And I want to speak <coughs> in this next section <coughs> to every young couple in this church that have kids. I want to speak to you singles who maybe you're not married yet, but you will at some point, and you will have kids too. I want to speak to every mom and dad who's ever had kids. And I want you to understand that the power of this verse is so devastating. It is the greatest single reality check that we all need today. And I want to tell you young couples right now, no matter what anybody tells you, don't always look at the disaster examples of moms and dads around us and think that's the way it has to be. You got moms and dads in this church who their kids want nothing to do with them. You got moms and dads in this church that their kids are totally out of control. You got moms and dads in this church that their kids care nothing about the things of God and absolutely nothing about anything connecting spiritual. And yet, mom and dad want to pretend that it's okay. You know what you need this morning? A reality check. And you know what? Here it comes. I'm telling you young couples and you young kids, that Bible gives you 100% guarantee. I don't care what some pastor or some book tells you. I don't care what some pastor who's already lost his kids will tell you so he can justify losing his. That Bible gives you 100% guarantee that you don't have to lose your kids to the world. And I want you to get this. For some of you, yeah, it's too late. You will remember why your family is under attack today. Now that's the first thing you need to know. This pie-in-the-sky Hallmark Channel mindset that Cinderella dream is just going to be like life is going to be great after you find Mr. Wonderful and you have your kids and you go down life's road together. That is a pipe dream and it's not reality. Listen, your family is going to be under attack because that's the program, the structure that God has designed to reach the world. And just because you can have kids, sir, doesn't make you a father. And just because you can give life, ma'am, doesn't make you a mother. You're just two people who produce another litter and a long line of litters of dogs 
who run the streets. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? Well, I'm going to write it in my Bible when I'm done, so you better think that through for a little bit. My Bible says, my Bible. Psalms 127, verse 4. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. So are children of the youth. You launch your kids to a target. Wherever your kids are at today, and they're 19, 20 years old, 18, 16, 17, 15, 16, man, they can be, in, they can be, they can be doing what a 25-year-old did 40 years ago when they're 14. Wherever they're at today is where you shot them and hit the target they're at. Now, I don't care if you don't like that. I don't care if you don't believe that. That's a reality check you better get. That Bible says, Psalms 22, 6, you train up a child. You don't grow them up. You train them up. And God gave us, you, young couples, you, the absolute guarantee that if you gave them meat to your household, through the work of your hands and your willingness and your labor, always seeking and willing to give them the meat. And you take those hands and the wool of the sacrifice and the flax and the thread and you make, listen, you make your kids clothes with the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I'm going to stop right here for a moment. And I'm sure, <coughs> I'm sure, <coughs> I am sure this won't apply to anybody in our church. <coughs> you make their clothes at the judgment seat of Christ with your hands and your willingness and giving your household meat. And those clothes, either you'll dress them or the world will dress them. And it's your choice. Allowing your daughter to dress when she's 14 like she's 20? Are you kidding me? You say that's none of your business. You're right. It's never none of my business till they get pregnant. It's never none of my business till they get out in the world. You're right. It's never none of my business till your failure falls at your feet. And an old bomb, can you help me? When they're 13 or 14 and you allow them to act and dress and look like they're 20, you know what's going to happen? In just a short time, they're going to start doing the things that they're doing when they're 20. As parents, we make the clothes for our children. We take the wool, the sacrifice off the lamb. Now, there'll be some sacrifice that you have to make as a parent for your children. Well, I know I talk about the sacrifices you have to make for God, and that is true. But I'm going to tell you right now, pairing is not all about you. 
Parenting is when you have children, there are sacrifices you have to make in your life because your job is greater than anything you want to do. You've got to make sure you're making their clothes. This is a good day to stay home. You walk those kids one step at a time through the years of those five stages of training them up that I've given you so many times. Hey, if Philippians 1.6 is true and means what it says, that God will begin a good work in Christ, in us at salvation, then all those years before that day comes, mom and dad, you young couples, listen to me. All those years before that day of salvation comes, you should be laying the groundwork in their lives and give them the meat of your household, preparing them long before that day ever comes. Most parents <clears throat> never think about their kids getting saved or the kids start getting that age of accountability, and by that time it's too late. You have to have a process to bring them through that you have the reality that that day is coming and as that day approaches long before it comes here, you're making their clothes. I want to tell you, I've seen some of the most horrific excuses for Christian parenting that you could ever want in old my 50 years. I ain't kidding you. I'm just telling you. I confess I don't, I don't, I, 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 the only answer I have is that we have deceived ourselves. How in the world does a Christian turn out gay children? How in the world do two people who claim to have a Bible, love the Bible, know what the Bible says, how does your child or your daughter ever come to the place that they become involved in that kind of demonic lifestyle that is absolutely connected as Thursday night with a reprobate mind that probably is never going to change? I've known pastors that have done that. And yet they want to stand up and pretend like, oops, it's okay. You know what? We have got to come to the place in our lives where we stop picking and choosing out of the Bible what we want and what we don't want. You either take it all or you leave it all. I've heard them try to justify that. Well, you know, you don't understand. No, you're right. I don't understand because my Bible tells me you have a guarantee. How do two Christians turn out rebellious kids. I had a lady one time and she said to me, she said, her, her, her daughter had gotten messed up with some of the goofiest people on the planet that never should have gotten messed up with. And, and she wanted to blame it on everybody else and, and blame it on this. And, 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 I, and I asked her, I said, okay, okay, stop, stop. Let me ask you one question. Who taught your daughter her value system in picking men? Now, we're going to deal with reality this morning. 
If you want, every head bowed and every eye closed, I'll pray one more time and you can leave here. Father, help us now to get all this thing straight. And if anybody here doesn't want to be here and can't handle this, now's the time to get one more time. One more time around the throne, Lord. I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you. The book's the book, the book, the book. Hope they got moving fast in the route now because here we go. Amen. It's time for reality this morning. We're in the midst of a crisis. I know we played along with it for a while and said, you know what, oh, it'll all get better. It ain't going to get any better. And when they're, and, and, and your family is under attack, this country is under attack, there is no safe place to go. There's no safe place to be. The only safe place you've got is in this book. You threw that out quite a while ago, didn't you? How do Christian parents turn out drunks, drug addicts, kids selling drugs back and forth, putting themselves on YouTube, showing everybody how they're a Christian, but they smoke this or they drink that? How does that happen? I, I mean... I, 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 I don't understand that. I, mean, I do understand it, but I'm, I'm playing this out here. How does two parents turn out kids who are perverts, child molesters? How does that happen? How does two parents turn out kids who at every turn, they're in trouble for something? Their whole life is about doing it their way, making their choices, and defying authority. How does that happen? Whose fault is that? The verse says, meet to your household. What part of that don't you understand? Now, let me say this. I get it. I've had couples in this church who I have all the respect for in the world. And their kids are messed up. I work with them on a regular basis. Unlike many of God's people, you want to sweep it under the rug and pretend it ain't there. But your kids are so stupid, they're putting it on social media. How dumb are you? And, and, you know, and I, I, I have these people, and here's their scenario. They're really good people, and they found this church late in life when their kids were already 13, 14, 15, and 16. They were good people who did the best that they could with what they had, but they got betrayed by the pastors and the churches that they went to. They were told one thing when that wasn't true, and they were told this. You ought to see some of the most godless, horrendous, material that's out there that they will give you if you're having trouble with your wife in a married relationship that is absolutely out of the pit of hell. And yet people, because they're good people, because they really want to do what's right, they follow it and their lives are getting to disaster. And I take those people and I've got several of them right now who are working with me on a regular basis and we go hand in hand through these things. Because I understand that that's the difference. They're not like most of God's people that have been associated with my ministry for 50 years. How many times have we been through child training? Really? 
How many times have you tried to be discipled? Really? I've had parents get upset with me or people in my church because, you know, their kids like us more they like the parents. You know what my answer to that is? You didn't disciple them. We did because you were too busy doing your own thing. When they had trouble in their life and needed to talk to somebody, they didn't come to you. You were out boozing it up, chasing the women. No, you failed them at every turn. And then you got to scratch your head this morning and say, I wonder went wrong. You went wrong. Reality is a tough thing, isn't it? I almost said that other word. I'm glad I didn't say it. And I get it. I'm not talking about those people who that are trying to do what they need to do. And you came into this church and into ministry and got into the Bible late. I have all the sympathy in the world for you, and we are working through those things on an individual deal, and, and I got it. I'm talking about the ones who have willingly abandoned your kids to the world. You were trained better than that. You're supposed to know better than that. You've been around Christianity and this church for what, 10, 15, 16 years? Like somebody said one time, well, I don't go to Thursday night Bible study anymore because they just ask the same old questions. And my answer was yes, and you still haven't learned them. I've seen moms and dads lose their kids when their kids was at the most vulnerable time of their lives. They were coming up and struggling with the peer pressure and everything that's coming against them and the devil had put their, his crosshairs right on their forehead. And you were busy drinking with the boys. You were busy running around doing your thing. And you, mom, with just a rollover. You just let it happen. You had the chance to stand up and say, I'm done with this. <laughs> yeah. And now you say, well, they won't listen to me anymore. That's because you never listened to God in the first place. Welcome, your ships come in, Galatians 6, 7. Meet to your household first. Dad, get your head out of wherever you got it stuck. Meet to your household first. Don't run around trying to prove how spiritual you are by ministering to everybody else. Food to your household first. Start, you young couples, now dressing them with the wool of sacrifice, with the flocks made with your hands or your willingness, making their clothes. Start dressing them for the day they're going to meet God face to face. Hey, look, you'll feed your child to meet at the king's table or through your example of a worthless mother and a worthless father, you'll feed them the garbage of this world. 
There'll come a time when they say, I'm done. I don't want part of this. Your hypocrisy has went so far. And you know what most guys do? I'll tell you, I see this all the time. You screw up. You've lost your kids. For 15, 20 years, you were never there. Everybody knows you're a clown. Everybody knows you were out in the world. Everybody knows you were doing what you were doing and never cared about them. And now suddenly, you're going to be Mr. Bible. And now we're going to have devotion. And then you get mad because they don't want to come. You are absolutely so ridiculously stupid. Get over to abundant life. You're absolutely ridiculously stupid. Get over to First Baptist of Raytown. Go somewhere where you can maintain your phony godliness because your kids are a lot smarter than you are. Let me tell you something. Husbands, fathers, you don't trample your wife under the tarmac and you don't trample your kids and then suddenly have a come to Jesus on Saturday morning, snap your fingers, and everybody's okay. But that's the way we think. <laughs> oh, I, I should have done Psalms 119. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I should have done that today. Meet to your household first. You young couples, listen to me. You have a 100% guarantee that you can completely control the destiny of your children and their life by God's design. Don't throw it away. Don't get so caught up in everything you want to do. Don't get caught up with who you think you are. Don't get caught up with all the ministry God's called you to do and you forsake the very first thing, the meat to your household first. And there'll come a time after they've seen your lousy example for so many years. You know, if you really want to know what your Christianity is really about, have one of your kids' friends ask them, what is your mom and dad really like as Christians? They may not tell you. I would say ask them, but they probably won't tell you because they know you just get angry and don't come to church anymore get mad, quit being a father. But there comes a time, I'm telling you moms and dads, there comes a time when it's too late and you're not going to get them back. I've seen families that, that come in late and they're good people and I, my heart aches for them because they're really trying to do what's right and I wish I could go back and fix for them. But God's got a purpose in it all. And they'll have four kids or five kids and they'll lose half of them. They'll have three or four kids and lose one or two of them. I've seen them where they've lost them all. And you know, in all of that, I'm going to tell you something. Whatever that scenario in your world is, I'm going to tell you right now, there's always something you can do. But you know what? The same pride that kept you from doing it back then is the same pride that will keep you from doing it now and it'll be the status quo. And then you wonder why your kids want nothing to do with you. Now watch this. Meet to 
her household, but only a portion to her maidens, the people you work with. Now, you better get this. This is one of the most profound things you'll ever see. You see, you have complete control over your family, but you don't have complete control over the people you work with. You live with your family 24-7. You can't live with the people you're working with. You grow up with your kids. You can't grow up with these people like you do your family. Now, I've told, I, I, I mean, you know, you, you give them what you can, but it's only a portion that you can give them uh, because your number one ministry is your, your, your household first. And then you give a portion to other people, but you can't, you can't control their lives. Now, I've seen many, many pastors in my world over the years that have tried to do that. I had a young boy in my ministry years ago. He was a good kid when he started out, grew up into my ministry. I sent him down to a church, and, you know, and, and I'll tell you something else. You know, you, you, you can, boy, if this isn't true, you know, you can invest yourself in guys and give them all you have and get them ready for the ministry, but I'm going to tell you something. You never know what a guy's really made of until he steps out on his own and starts building that church. That's when it comes out. And this was a good kid. He's dead now, by the way. He's a good kid. And uh, he got in this mindset that he was going to try to control everything in his people's church. He told them what they could read, what they couldn't read. He told them what tapes that they could listen to, Bible tapes, and what they couldn't. He tried to get into their world and dictate and predict everything for those people. He'd tell them that they shouldn't go on vacation because they need to be in church. He'd tell the guys, you can't go deer hunting because you need to be in church. He tried to control every facet of those people's lives, and it simply will not work. Because I can only control my family. You can only control your family. When it comes to you folks who I love with all of my heart and dearly and we have some great times in the Bible together, I can only give you a portion. There's been times when it probably would have benefited a marriage couple for me to move in for a week or two. But my striped shirt and my whistle was out the cleaners and I didn't have time to get it. But there would be value in that. I've even had them where, you know, they'll come in and she'll give me this wrong dissertation of what he did and she'll give me all this. And so after a while, I got smart about 10 years ago, I would buy them little tape recorders. And when it started to go to town, they'd just tape it. And he started to say, well, and she started to say, we have a tape player. And I just listened to it. That, that solved so many problems. The stock of batteries went up 100%. We should have invested in it because I used them so many times. I, 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 can only, I, I can only give you a portion. Now, understanding that concept is why, here it comes, I try to give you and get the Bible to you every way that I can. I, I, I try to give it, I try to be, <laughs> I'm not saying I am, I try to be good Sunday morning, I try to be good Thursday night Bible study, when I come in institute, I'm trying to be prepared, people ministry, one-on-one. -on -one. Every time we open up the Bible together, it's, I feel it's my job. I can only give you a portion. So here's the deal. The bigger portion I have in myself determines the bigger portion I can give you. 
And, and I realize that that's a, that's a handicap to a certain degree. You've got to do the work yourself. I can't be like a mom with a kid and say, brush your teeth, do this. Did you read your Bible? Did you do your homework? I'm not going to do that. But if, see, a parent has complete control when they use it biblically, they're not out chasing the world. It's the difference, like I said last week, between fast Christians and slow Christians. And if I may say so, some of you, if you go any slower, you're going to go backwards in time. You see the difference between your family and the others that you work with. And you understand that giving the Bible to people you work with is one thing. But in a family, you have complete control. Why would you give that control over to somebody else? You say, my boys run around with their own crowd. Who allowed that? Who introduced him to that crowd? Well, my girl's messed up with this guy and he's a bum. Okay. Why did you not take her to Bible school and let her go to bum school? Where does she learn all of that? Whose fault is that? Whose responsibility is that? Well, I got a boy who doesn't care anything about church, and I got a kid who's doing this and doing that, and I got a girl who's doing this and that. Okay, I get it. You know where fixing it starts? You taking responsibility for it. My first question to you is simply this. Have you, for the last 15, 20 years, since you've been married, had kids, haven't you given meat to your household? When they were in that vulnerable time, when they needed it so desperately, why were we discipling them? And I'm all for that. We have to do that. I was talking to somebody the other day. I can't remember who it was, and we were talking about this very concept, and I said to, my, I said to them, I said, you know what? My whole ministry, I've been parenting somebody's kids. And I absolutely know that I'm, a, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm second rate at that because that's not God's design. But you know what? If that's the way it's got to be to keep him from going to the world, then that's what I'll do. Yeah. But it's the way it is. And I've had to do that all my life with people because parents don't care. They don't care till they get their kids get in a jam and then they care, but only for a little bit. As soon as it, the abortion's over, soon as the problem goes, soon as you get them into rehab, <laughs> you're right back to business as usual, aren't you? You see, this is why, again, a little bit more, this is why it's so hard for us to reach our own family, brothers and sisters, moms and dads. You ever notice that? Jesus said one time in Mark 6, 4, he says, the prophet hath no honor in his own country. That is so true. I mean, many of you have been frustrated trying to win your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad, and you just can't get anywhere with them. If somebody else went in, you might get farther with them. And I'm not saying that they should, but I'm just telling you why you can't. You know why? Because they know you. They've seen you all your life the way you are. I'll never forget and I, I take this, with a, and I'm not certainly not mad or bitter about it, but uh, I'll never forget when I got out of the Army. And I, and I you know, I supposedly was saved. I, I guess I was. I don't know. I made sure of it later on. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'll never forget. I, I, went to, I went to church that morning because my mom wanted me to go. My dad had just died. 
and I was still in my uniform, and I just come home, you know, and, and I was sitting, uh, you know, I went to Mel Sabaka's class. And uh, I, I knew how that they were, and I sat as far back in the back as, as I could. And I was sitting back there, and that morning they had a guest speaker. His name was Tommy Thomas, as you've heard me talk about so many times. And they had a pulpit much like this, and I'm sitting back there, and old Tommy Thomas was an old war horse preacher boy. Ran the Brown Street Mission. I mean, this guy could take the pin off the walls. And he got up there and he said, I want to preach to you this morning on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he said that, he kind of slumped over and he grabbed his chest. And he started to get out and he says, the Lord is coming. Are you ready? And then he was down on one knee. And the last thing he said before he died in that pulpit and went home to be with the Lord he cried out as loud as he could, are you ready? And I'm telling you right now, folks, it was pointing right at me. And I knew I wasn't ready. And he hit the floor, died right there. Mel Sabaka got up and preached probably the greatest sermon he ever preached, but I didn't hear a word of it. All that day, all that night, for that next week, all I heard was, are you ready? And that finger pointing at me and those eyes looking at me, and I knew I wasn't ready. So, pretty dramatic, huh? Kind of like Paul on the road to Damascus, I think. <laughs> well, God just beat me up that week. Next Sunday night, main church service, I went down forward, and I'd had it. And I got on my knees down there, and I rededicated my life. And they said, what did you come forward for? And, and I didn't know. I said, little did I know. I said, I, I'm, I'm dedicating my life to the ministry. I, 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 I don't know what else to say. I knew I hadn't done anything, and I knew that I needed to do something. And those words just come out of my mouth. Little did I know that God said, write that down. We're going to be using that here a little bit later. And I said, I, 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 I've just come to surrender for the ministry. Well, the next week, I got a letter from the church. Now, my mom was probably like, I was 20-some years old, and my mom still opened all my mail. <laughs> you ever have a mom like that? <laughs> She opened everything that came, man. There was no secrets. And I came home from, from work, and, and that letter was laying there, and they had sent me, because I came to surrender to full-time service. So they're thinking, I'm going to go to Bible college. You know, the, not the whole route. So I get this very nice letter from Harold Henniger, who was the pastor, congratulating on me and, and wanting to know that if I, for surrendering to full-time service, and, and, you know, if you... Uh, can help you anyway, choose the Bible college you're going to go to. Very nice letter. My mom picked it up and she looked at me and she says, you kidding me, right? You? She says, is this a joke? You are going to preach? She says, you'll never be able to do that. You know why she said that? No, I'm not mad at her. She had every right to say that, knowing me the way she did. But you know why she said that? Because she knew me. Now, later on, she changed her mind, and she heard me preach many, many times. And after a while, you know, she'd, she'd, she'd always, you know, she, my mom was always who she was. And I have about 40 sayings that she used to say that I'd love to tell you. You'd have a rip laughing at them, but 
There's women and children here. I can't do it. <laughs> but, you know, that would have defeated most people. My very mom, who I had been a rebellious, wayward son, and finally God got a hold of me through the death of my father and the death of that man preaching. Two deaths that changed my life. And I was as serious as a heart attack, and I came home that night, and that whole week I just said, Lord, and then I get that letter. My mom says, you got to be kidding me. You in the ministry? And I just said to myself, yeah, Mom, me in the ministry. Prophet hath no honor in his own country. Your family don't want to hear it sometimes because they know us too well. You know, there's two main rules I follow in trying to help people help themselves. One of them I gave you last week, which was you only get out of something what you're willing to put into it. We're coming back to church now. You know, you'd think we've been off, what, three or four months. People would just be dying to get here. Believe me, they're not. Yeah, the, the, the excuse is now going to carry on for them, you know. I get it. I get it. And I know there's people who are sick, who are old and elderly that don't need to be here. Dad needs to stay home. You know, the guy we prayed for this morning needs to stay home. There are people who have got some bad physical needs that need to stay away till it's 100% safe for them. But come on. Come on. You know those Waldensians I told you about? You know you're going to stand side to side to them with the judgment decree of Christ someday? And there's somebody that had his head blown off with gunpowder or some lady got impaled with a hot poker iron. Some mom and dad, tears streaming down their face, crying while their little kids screamed for them to help them while the pigs ate them. And yet they served God faithfully. And we're going to stand there and say, we didn't do it because we were afraid we were going to get a virus. That's a reality check. Number one, I always follow this, never want somebody to do right more than they do. You know these. I don't care if you don't want to come. I'm not going to beg you to come. You know what this church is. You know what we have. If that's what your problem is and you've got an attitude and that's the way it is and that's the way it is, you know what? It's okay. Second one is, and boy, this is so true, when it starts wrong in our lives, unless something happens and something changes, in most cases, when it starts wrong in our lives, it'll end wrong. When it starts wrong with your kids, it'll end wrong with your kids. If it starts wrong with your marriage, it'll end wrong with your marriage. And we are like the merchant ships as Christians, moms and dads. We bring our food, the Word of God, from afar. Kids, we feed our household first meat. We make them strong. We make them stable. We make them sound. We give them sound doctrine, 1 Timothy 1.10, which will lead to them having a sound mind, 2 Timothy 1.7, which will build into them a strong, sound faith, Titus 1.13, which will give them sound words, 2 Timothy 1.13 and 14, uh, which will give them sound speech, Titus 2.8. And it's all based on sound wisdom and understanding out of Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Strong meat to your household first. That's your responsibility. 
then our second ministry will be the maidens. We give them a portion of what we have, and as I've already said, it's simple math and it's truth. The more you have to begin with, the bigger the portion you can give them. It's hard to fill a 55-gallon drum with, a, with, a, with an eyedropper. And we do this in the night, the church age. And we are the 11th hour Christians, Matthew chapter 20. And we are at work in the fourth watch, Mark 13, right before the sun comes up. Boy, this chapter will kill you. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting or drunkenness, nor in chambering or wantonness, not in strife and envy, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. You know, back in Europe after the Reformation, Germany was greatly influenced by Martin Luther. And there were parts of Germany that, to this day, are very strong in salvation that Luther taught. And there was a town in Hernup, Germany, that all up through the time of Martin Luther, the 1600 to 1700s, like all cities in Europe, they had a night watchman. And the night watchman would go around every hour, and you could hear him, and he would, the people would hear him cry out, one o'clock and all was well, you know, and they'd know that he was on guard duty in there. But after the great Reformation and Martin Luther's salvation through the Bible and the blood of Christ broke from the Catholic Church, the whole nation, for a period of time, found God in the Word of God. And every, every night for every year, as the white watchman passed on and another one took his place, all night long, the cry of the night watchman was based on a King James 1611 authorized version. And here's what he said. The cry is as follows. At midnight, ye brethren, here the midnight clock is humming. At midnight, our great bridegroom will be coming. An hour later, as he walked through the same town, he'd say, past one o'clock, the day breaks out of darkness, morning star appear to break our hardness. An hour later, tis two, on Jesus wake the silent season, ye two so near related, will and reason an hour later <coughs> the clock is three the blessed three doth merit the best of praise from body soul and spirit an hour later here's four o'clock when three make supplication the lord will be the fourth on that occasion an hour later five is the clock Five virgins were discarded when five with wedding garments were rewarded. And finally, through his last time through, before the sun came up and the watchman went off his watch, 
The clock is six. I go off my station. Now, brethren, watch yourselves for your own salvation. My dear friends, this morning the clock is ticking. The night is far spent. And we are at the very end. And wherever you find yourself, whatever struggle you're in with your own personal life, your family, whatever it may be, I say again, as I've worked in working with so many moms and dads who find themselves in that later scenario, there's always something you can do. You're going to find out very quickly that the problem is not your children. The problem is not the world. The problem is not the drugs. The problem is not the rebellion nor the indifference. You're the problem. Until we fix you, nothing will get fixed. Put on ye the Lord Jesus Christ. Give meat to your household and a portion to your maidens. Great chapter. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so much. And we thank you, Father, for what a chapter, what verses these are, powerful, important, just absolutely devastating. But, Lord, it's what we need. God, I, I, I would pray that I wouldn't be such a weak pastor that I would allow these people to go to the judgment seat of Christ without a warning, that I would be so timid and so afraid and so cowardly that I would fear the face of man more than I would ever fear not preaching the truth and giving these your people the reality check that you have put in this chapter. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you'll, you'll use this. Make us closer. Make us better. And Lord, I know there's people out there today that probably aren't ever going to come back. They haven't got an attitude about this. They've got an attitude about something else. And you know what? That's what's got them in trouble all their life, their attitude. So we'll take what you give us, and we'll, to the last man standing, we'll do the work that God has called us to do. We look forward to getting back together. We look forward to being able to do what we need to do and follow the rules and be protected and to do safely what God has called us to do, one step at a time. In Jesus' name, for a sake we ask it. Amen. We were offline this morning when I made the announcement, just so you know.